I always love having Danny and Mike Nash, two of our elders who are not on staff, but they serve us so well. I love having them as a part of our Sunday services, and not just because Danny tries to dedicate a 103-year-old child, (laughs) although that mistake gives me a lot of bandwidth to make a mistake that you won't necessarily remember this morning. Thanks. Appreciate it. Served me well. Appreciate it. Set up for success. Would you turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 8? We are in the last part of Romans chapter 8 today. And my wife, Stephanie, is going to join me here to read this passage together. We're starting in Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. Let's read together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me, church? Holy Spirit, we need your guidance and your power for your word to come to life in our hearts. Engage our imaginations today, engage our, our minds in a way that, that point to you. Engage our ears to be open to hear from you alone and, and not to be listening for the distractions that can so easily happen in an auditorium this size or in the things of the world and notifications coming across our phone. May we be focused on you, God. Engage our hearts to be full yet again, of the grace and mercy you so freely pour out to us. That we would be amazed and that we would would stand in awe and wonder at this great salvation offered to us. We pray these things knowing we can't generate them on our own. And so we look to you. Through Jesus' name, by his blood. Amen. Amen. Over the last few weeks, uh, you may remember we had uh, several weeks ago something that we called Prank Your Pastor, and I have been recovering from that for the last few weeks. Um, I'm not saying I got it worse than Christian and Shane did, but theirs was like a one and done. Uh, I am still finding tinfoil shards in my office, and uh, I tried to tell Shane that he had to clean my office for me. Uh, He does not have the heart of a servant in that way. I just want to let you know. So uh, actually, it's it's been interesting because it gave me the opportunity to kind of get to some parts of my office that needed attention. So thank you to whoever it was 
that did the tinfoiling in my office. I have two of your shoe prints as evidence uh, to be able to hold against you someday. My understanding is that there were four people there. So if you want to find out, I know two names already. That's uh, Josh Eisenberg and Claire Henderson. Um, they won't be getting Christmas cards from me this year. It's just someone had to be cut, and it started with you. Now, it, it allowed me to get to a couple places in my office that needed some attention. And they're going to say a couple is far too few to mention. But there are, there's a, a kind of a bookshelf on a credenza behind my desk. And it's, it's a number of reference books. And, and, you know, those books and study and different things that go on, they can just get disheveled in a number of ways. And so this uh, cleanup process over the last few weeks has allowed me to really get some time in getting some things back in order as it relates to my desk and to my office. And see, Paul opened up Romans chapter 8 with one bookend. He opened up Romans chapter 8 with one bookend where he said that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And today he's going to put the other bookend in place for us, that there is no separation from Jesus. And isn't it wonderful to know that God orders our life in that way and then he also upholds it by his own strength and his own might? Because if I'm being honest with you, my strength and my might are just never enough. They're never quite enough to keep things in order, let alone keep my office straight. See, they're, they're reference materials, so they tend to be larger books and, and different things like that. But there's, there's like a, a dictionary on one end and then there's a, a concordance on the other. And, and they, ha- they, they hold things in place just fine. But in my own life, in my mind, in my heart, in my soul, even the things that I give my strength to, they can so easily become disordered. And so isn't it kind of God and is it wonderful of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to give us some bookends for our lives? That there is no condemnation. That there is no separation. See, Paul wants to shore up for those who believe in a sense of assurance. So let me ask you this question this morning. What is it that holds your life together in Jesus Christ? What are the things that you look to that hold your life together in Christ? He is the one who secures our salvation. He alone is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And today we're going to see in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit points us to Christ for assurance. For the assurance of our salvation, he points us to Christ for hope, for change. The Holy Spirit reminds us of our standing in Christ, that there is no condemnation, and our position in Christ, that there is no separation. So that's what we're going to see today. Now next Sunday, I just want to give you a heads up. Next Sunday, Danny is going to do an overview of chapter 8. If you've been here for a few weeks, you know we have taken the entire month of May to just work through slowly and methodically Romans chapter 8. We're in an overall series on the book of Romans. Next week, Danny is going to do an overview of that chapter with us, uh, and he's going to be looking at the hope that Paul points us to. He directs our minds, our thoughts, our affections toward, and we're going to have an extended time of response at the close of the service where Mike Nash is going to lead us in communion. We're going to have extended time of worship. So if you come in next Sunday and the, the upfront worship seems a bit shorter, that's intentional on our part to be able to plan accordingly uh, so that Danny can share and then we have communion and an extended time of worship at the end. But for today, but for today, let's take the closing verses and the questions that Paul kind of brings to the fore. We're going to take them one by one really as just our main points today, just verse by verse. So let's look at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. 
what then shall we say to these things? Now, Paul's reaching back a little bit. He's reaching back. He's building on what he said just before these verses. And I think for us today, it it does help set a very helpful context for us to understand uh, what it is that Paul is referring back to so that we understand what it is that he's directing our thoughts to today. So let's look just a couple of verses before to Romans 8, 28 through 30, where we read this. And we know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for good. Though for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is asking me and you today, how is it that we're going to respond to that? What then shall we say to these things? In other words, what difference uh, will these truths, what difference will they make? Or what difference even can they make in our lives? Paul has throughout the the entirety of uh, Romans chapter 8 been building on themes like our new, our spirit-infused desire to live for and to please God. The righteousness, that is the right standing for acceptance before God the Father. The righteousness that Christ alone can provide for us. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are the themes that he's building on. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit with us. He's bringing truth to life and helping us live in the way that that Jesus exemplified and calls us to. The Holy Spirit points us beyond our circumstances to the hope that we have through Christ's finished work. So Paul begins this passage asking what it is we'll say. How is it that we're going to respond to these truths? Now imagine if we just stopped here. Imagine if we just stopped that, and we heard that there was no condemnation. Right? That, that's wonderful. That's the beginning of the bookend. That's wonderful. It's glorious. That's grace of God. That is amazing. But imagine if we just stopped with an understanding of that there's no condemnation. I wonder if we were left with just this one bookend, what life might feel like. It might feel like the life that many of you are living in Christ right now. And I don't mean that as an accusation or a slam or anything belittling. I I mean it as a call to consider your faith. And consider, are we leaning on one bookend and listing to one direction or another? Not experiencing the fullness of all the things that God has for us. I wonder if it would be a lot like a baby that isn't engaged with the birth canal, just floating through life. I don't use that illustration to just reference child dedication. or That's actually language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, the groans and the pangs of childbirth. Do you feel like you're floating through life in your faith right now? Is there a sense that you're just going along until glory? I think that lacks something of the fullness of what God actually has for us as his people. Not simply as his creation, as his covenant people, empowered by his spirit. No matter the season of life, no matter the situation in life that you're in. Are you facing retirement? Are you facing graduation? What is it that you're facing that God says, I want you to engage with what it is that I have for you in the midst of this? It's wonderful news that we have no condemnation, but if we don't understand that there's no separation either, we may just be floating along. 
And may that not be so for us, church. May we be a church who are not just disengaged, just going through life, going through the motions. May we be ones that know that He is near to us. He is with us. He's dwelling in us. So what then shall we say to these things? Let's go on to the end of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God who has purposed our glory is all-powerful, why are we afraid of any opposition? Why do we fear when the world acts like the world? Why are we afraid when we see brokenness in new ways, even in our own homes or extended families? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's actually equipping us here. He's letting us know there will be opposition in this world. There will be moments when you have to stand for your faith, and that may mean loss, whether in business or in relationship or even in terms of your own reputation. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're being equipped here to know that there will be opposition in this fallen world, but we as his covenant people don't have to be concerned with what the world says about us. Because our confidence lies in the one who both created and overcomes the world. He created and overcomes the world. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's look on to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Think about this with me. Danny was talking to parents just a moment ago. There are times as parents that we spare our children where we may, we may step in and intervene on their behalf. Where we may spare our children the, maybe even the full form of a measure of discipline. And when dis- discipline I mean broadly. I, I don't simply mean uh, some, some form of punishment. I mean even just privileges being removed. We may step in and spare them the full measure of a form of discipline. I've done it, especially with my daughter, according to my sons. <laughs> They're probably right. I've done it. If you're a parent, maybe you've done it. If you're a child, maybe you've experienced it. Maybe it doesn't feel that way, but maybe you have experienced that, that parents can spare their children. At times, judges, even in the courts of law, judges will spare criminals when they reduce or suspend a sentence. I was talking with somebody, and they, their family had a member going through divorce, and I remember them sharing you know, that in mediation sometimes, what they're actually attempting to do is that both parties equally walk away upset with the agreement. And I just thought, that doesn't sound like justice. That sounds awful. But judges at times will spare criminals when they reduce or suspend a sentence. But that's not what, Jesus, that's not what the Father, God, did with Jesus. The full penalty for our sins. The full payment needed was poured out on him on my behalf and on your behalf. He who did not spare his own son. In other words, God has done the greater thing. 
He's done the greatest thing for our salvation. He didn't spare his own son. His son laid down his life so that, so that I may live, so that you may live. And if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not also with him, the one who laid down his life, graciously give us all things? In other words, God has done the greater thing. The lesser things are light work to him. What is it that you need today that is light work for God your Father? What is it that you need to look to him today and say, I can't do this? And he says, I know, but look at what I've done and I can provide. Because he has done the greater thing, therefore he will do the lesser things. And he will use all of the things for our good. And what is our good? That is being conformed and made and shaped and molded into the image of his son, the one who laid down his life. Oh, there's good news. It just rings through this passage today. Verse 33 goes on to say, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We'll get into election in the coming weeks. It is God who justifies. Paul's already said this a few times. Think about Romans 4.25 where it says this, that he, Christ, was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it's God who is the one who justifies. Romans 5.8 reminds us of this. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still opposing him. While we were still living in our own sense of good and right and glory. While that was happening, Christ died for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. As I was cleaning tinfoil in my office, I was trying to think of a courtroom example of this. And there are many that come to mind. Maybe a speech that kind of turns everything in a movie so that I can illustrate this in a way that would be helpful for you. And so the obvious ones started coming to mind, right? Like, you can't handle the truth. Or maybe the movie Gladiator. There's all, all kinds of speeches that happen in those turning points and those moments. And, and maybe you think back to old shows like Perry Mason and, and different law dramas that we all enjoy watching. And, and it, somehow they get it just past that last commercial break and then everything turns just the right way. And I realized, you know, the problem for me in finding an illustration is this. The courtroom resides in my own heart and my own head. That's me personally. Maybe you can understand what I mean by that. There's a reason television and movies don't quite capture it because there are times that I am myself the one that says, you can't serve God in that way. Look, look at the attitude you just had. My own heart and my own mind, they bring these charges. And then there's an accuser of my soul who is looking for ways to steal and to kill and to destroy and there are times where I will confess he uses my own mind and my own emotions against me. And, and I say these things not because there's something massive wrong that I'm about to confess, but I'm just saying I am just like you. Perhaps you walk through those moments as well where the courtroom resides in your own heart and mind. He knows my thoughts. He sees and he understands the leanings or the desires of my heart. 
He knows the areas that he's focused on to bring change in me. And perhaps you are in the same place. I think it would be difficult to find a helpful courtroom illustration here because this is a court on a cosmic and eternal scale that only Jesus has been given the ability to judge in. There's nothing in this world that can represent that well. And so what, who is it that shall bring any charge against God elect? It's God who justifies us speaking to me this morning. Perhaps it's speaking to you as well. John 5.22 says this, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. He's, the Father has given him that responsibility to be the one who judges. This reminds us of Jesus' role. He does so both as one who lived fully as man and fully as God. It confirms his deity, which reminds us when he says that it is finished. In that cosmic and eternal court, it is truly finished on your behalf. He doesn't stand as my judge anymore. For those who believe, he is now our advocate. He's our defense attorney. He would never condemn those for whom he died. But can I tell you this today? If you're here and you're not a believer, he still stands as your judge. And his role flips very simply. By believing on him to be the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So Christian, Christian here today, do not be afraid of him. Do not try to avoid him. This is the goodness of the nearness that he extends to us today. But if you're here today and not in Christ, you're not following after Christ. He has not taken lordship of your life, putting all of your hope and faith in Jesus his finished work on your behalf. Can I ask you this? What are you waiting for? What is the thing you need to get past tomorrow or this week or this year so that you're finally ready? God doesn't promise that time. What are you waiting for? Cast yourself on the mercy of God today knowing that through the blood of Jesus he will not turn you away. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 goes on to say this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now the word interceding is most often thought of in ways I've heard over the years. Uh, that, God, that Jesus is praying on our behalf to the Father. I do think that that can be a helpful part of what it is that Jesus is doing. But I want us to examine this just a little bit further today to better understand what role Jesus now plays. Not as the one who provides this righteousness, not only for our salvation, but for our very life in Him. He's interceding. He is mediating. <coughs> He's intervening on our behalf. He is pleading a case to the benefit of another. In his book, and I'd like to just highly recommend this to you, in his book, The Bookends of the Christian Life, uh, no, that's actually not where I got the opening illustration. I promise, but you won't believe me now. Um, the bookends of the Christian life. Th this is one of those books that's very small, very easy to read, that has had a tremendous impact on my own faith personally. I, I highly commend it to you. 
But in this book, Jerry Bridges is quoting the Puritan Thomas Wilcox, and he says this of Jesus' role in dealing with what, what you and I may face at different times, and that is that persistent sense of guilt before the Lord. The thing that feels like why I shouldn't be able to draw near. The, the very thing that Jesus died for, and yet we know what's going on in our heart and in our homes so often. Jerry Bridges, quoting Thomas Wilcox, says this, Shift your focus to Christ, our mediator. Are you dealing with persistent guilt? Shift your focus to Christ, your mediator. If we're so discouraged we cannot pray, then we must see Christ praying for us, as it says in Romans 8.34, that Christ is using his influence with the Father on our behalf. What better news could we ever want to know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, co-creator of the universe, is addressing the Father on our behalf. He is interceding on our behalf. I appreciate how Bridges goes on to address the bookends of the Christian life where he actually says that there is one bookend of the righteousness of Christ, that the other bookend is to to be the power of the Holy Spirit leading us to what he calls a dependent responsibility. If you haven't read it, I'll trust you and you will enjoy it as much as I have. But to illustrate this idea of Christ as our mediator interceding on our behalf, please turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, I know many of the original transcripts of the New Testament don't include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. You may notice in your Bible as you're turning there uh, that John 8 actually has some type of a different format or brackets around this section. It's most widely understood and thought to be a passage that is illustrative of things that happened during Jesus' ministry. So I'm not pointing to it to draw some new theological conclusion about how to respond to someone caught in sin or, or some other foundational doctrinal point. But it does align with Jesus' character. It does align, I believe, and illustrate well for us what it looks like for Jesus to the, be the one who intercedes on our behalf. John 8, beginning in verse 3, we read this. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst Excuse me just for a moment. They said to him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him. that They might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away. One by one. Beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You imagine Jesus' response stunning that mob that was gathered around her. 
when he first responded to them, what, what did they do? All they could do is stand and stare. And then we read that one by one, beginning with the older men, who, who I would somewhat assume had, had lived through too much to be able to feign any sense of sinlessness. They had lived through too much to be able to say, yeah, yeah, I'm sinless. They begin to walk away, beginning with the older ones, it says. And Jesus asks, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she responds. You imagine these words, maybe delivered through quivering lips, fear of the end of her life in that moment. She has stood on the edge of eternity and she has seen what it looks like for her Savior to intervene. And what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I appreciate John Lindell's brief commentary on this exchange. He says this, In this powerful scene, Christ reveals a definitive portrait of God to us. Jesus stands between the accused and her accusers, absorbing their rage. He stands there protecting a cherished, wayward daughter of God, and as he stands for us even now. In Jesus, we see a God who is willing to stand between our accuser and us. Let's make sure we note Jesus' response in three ways that I think are very practical and very simple for us. He does not condemn. He is near and he is active. And he calls for change that he empowers us for. Go and sin no more, he says to her. He calls for that transformation. He calls for that change. But this is how he intercedes, praying, stepping in, mediating, absorbing the accusation. This is how he intercedes for you and for me today. He does not condemn. He is near and active, and he calls for change that he also empowers us for. So verse 35 says this in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And haven't all the other questions really been leading up to this? As we come to this moment, the climax of this passage where Paul is making his argument and helping us to understand what is it the one thing that Christians might fear the most? What is it that might give us any sense of withdrawal of the comfort or the hope that we have in this life? That is a sense of separation from God. It's a fear that goes back to the garden and our fractured relationship with God our Father. The one who created us, the one who is our friend that we once enjoyed such a close communion and relationship with. And when we can look around and we may see many things that would say, yes, what I'm experiencing is because there's separation between God and I right now. Or it might give us a sense that his love has been withdrawn from us. Paul goes on in verse 35 and he says this, the things are like trouble, hardship, persecution, These are things that come to all of us as Christians. He wants us to know that, but they don't reflect something. They don't reflect that God has withdrawn his love from me and from you. What about the vulnerability of nakedness? The fear that can come from danger or the sword that comes to so many of our brothers and sisters who suffer in other nations, persecuted for their faith. We know this to be true. That Paul wants us to understand this is not a withdrawal or a lack in the nearness of Christ. 
even at the point of death, Jesus is near, ushering us into eternity for those who believe. Now, we will face obstacles. We will face opposition. But there's none of them that can detach us from the love of Jesus. I was struck in preparation at the thought of how each Christmas it can be so easy for us to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And that's true through the incarnation. That's through, that is true through Jesus being sent to the earth to be clothed in his own creation on our behalf. Paul wants us to experience the nearness of Emmanuel, God with us, as a part of the normal, everyday life of the Christian. The normal, everyday life of the believer. No, this is not permission to play Christmas music all year. But it's permission to know his nearness every day, every moment, every hour. No matter what circumstances you're walking through. The highs, the lows of this life, the glory or the garbage that we walk through, hopefully together in community, God is near. Even today on the Christian calendar, we know as Pentecost Sunday, I mentioned this in worship, which literally means 50. 50 days after Easter. Today we're reminded of the event, of the events of Acts 2 in which the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament connecting back to the book of Joel and the church at large experiencing the benefit from the promised one to come, to comfort, and to guide. I love how one author, Ryan Griffith, put it, and, and uh, I've linked to his article in the online notes for you. He says this, You hear about Easter because of Pentecost. Think about that. We hear about Easter because of Pentecost. Why is that? Well, because Pentecost fulfills Jesus' promise to never forsake his own. Pentecost launches the global proclamation of the gospel. And Pentecost signals the coming of fuller restoration and greater celebration. That's the good that we live in today. That's why you hear us reference Pentecost Sunday. It's not just so that we have these little anchors to kind of swing through in life on the Christian calendar. It's so that we know what it is that the Spirit empowers in our life as those who believe. So what do Easter, Christmas, Pentecost Sunday, for that matter, creation, the covenants, the history of redemption, the grand narrative of Scripture, what do all of those things point us to? They point us to this, that since the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, where our relationship with God was fractured on a cosmic and eternal scale, throughout years of unfaithfulness and the covenants and the laws that were laid out in the Old Testament and now offered through the rescue of the cross and the nearness of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, God has been rushing toward you as his people. And he is drawing you back to himself. Verse 36 references Psalm 44, 22, where it says this, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And this simply does this. It reminds us as Christians that there are difficulties. The ones that we were just talking about in verse 35, there are difficulties that are coming for us as Christians. We are not exempted from suffering and death. 
But verse 37 gives us this glorious hope. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that today? Do you live in and experience the goodness of this truth today? That there is nothing that can separate you. There is nothing you can come up with in the courtroom of your own mind. There is nothing that you can experience in this world through loss or death or pain or suffering that will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And so how are we living, church, as a result of this? What then will you say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He is interceding on our behalf, and in all these things we are more than conquerors. Now I want to be careful not to go into what we would lovingly refer to as bumper sticker theology. It makes a great bumper sticker, but it's awfully hard to live. I'm not talking about epic Christianity. I'm not talking about always winning. I'm not talking about all of our personalities being changed into A-types or us all having this Enneagram alignment. That would be so dangerous for the church, right? I'm talking about this, that every one of us in the tapestry of God's creation can know this, that the one who conquered on our behalf, we can live in the goodness of his victory. Christians are more than conquerors. The Greek phrase is actually this, overwhelmingly conquer. You don't just win, you win big. The greater thing has been done. The lesser things are light work. We'll face trials. You'll face obstacles, opposition, hardship, lack, danger, persecution. Christians are more than conquerors because God turns everything, even suffering and death, into good as we're changed into the image of Christ. What an amazing work that Christ does for us. He takes us from being the sheep led to the slaughter, as we're told in verse, verse 36, and says that we will become more than conquerors through him who loved us in verse 37. What a radical difference he makes on our behalf. This begs the question for us. What are you putting your confidence in? What are you putting your confidence in to be able to be near or to have a sense that, that Christ is near? Hey, you may want to say, I mean, we just celebrated today. Like, yeah, I was dedicated as a baby. I still have, like, the certificate and everything. Like, the Bible is in some kind of treasure chest at my parents' house. I was dedicated as a baby. No, no. Your confidence is this, that Christ died for you. Maybe you say this, well, I was baptized, like, back in the day. I was baptized, and, and there was this, like, camp experience, and we went down to the lake, and I was dunked, and I was different, but not really. I, but I was baptized. It's this external sign, yes, to be sure, but no, that's not our confidence. No, our confidence is this, that Christ died. Perhaps in your church background, you went through confirmation. You went through the process of, of going through the catechisms, and you went through the process of, of just kind of all of these next steps that were so neatly laid out. And you say, well, I, I have a memory of that, a distant memory of that. And, and every once in a while I think about those things, especially when you reference the liturgical calendar. and I get a little triggered about my past. But that, maybe that's my confidence, that I've just always kind of known about Jesus, and I, I went through confirmation. No, 
Your confidence is this, Christ died on your behalf. Perhaps this, I tithe. And I don't mean like tithe on net, I tithe on the gross. Um, so like I'm taking a biblical principle and I'm making it my salvation aim. Or the thing that I put all of my hope in. My, my money giving is what it is. I'm buying my way into heaven. No. It's Christ who died on your behalf. I was raised in the church. Even more so, no. It's Christ who died on your behalf. I go on missions trips. That's great. That's so philanthropic. That's so gospel proclaiming. But don't put your hope in that. It's Christ who died on your behalf. You see, I have these gifts. And it seems I have a uh, decent portion of them. No. It's Christ who died on your behalf. I go to Metro Life Church. Okay, that's great. But no. It's Christ who died on your behalf. Paul is saying to us this, whatever you put your confidence in, as it relates to your own efforts, to your own abilities, maybe even to your own history, put that away. Here's the one declaration that we have. It's Christ who died, and he is all my hope. He is all my peace, and he alone is my salvation. Paul uses the extremes in, in, in God's own created universe to help us understand that there is no separation at the close of our passage today in verse 38. He says, he says things about the extremes of existence, that is death and life. He talks about the extremes of created spiritual armies, these angels and demons, these supernatural powers that angels would not, de demons could not undo our relationship with God. He uses the extremes in time that there, there is a present and a future. Matter of fact, he's actually referencing back to verse 35 that there's nothing now or nothing in the future that would be able to separate us. Life, death, all of those things. He uses the extremes of space, height, and depth. Nothing swooping down, nothing coming up. He uses the extremes in creation that there is no other created thing that can separate us. Nothing in the entire created realm can thwart God's purpose for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Remember today that it is the Holy Spirit that does this work. He is the one who points us to Christ for assurance of salvation. He is the one who gives us any sense of hope for change. The Holy Spirit reminds us of our standing in Christ, that there is no condemnation. And our position in Christ, that there is no separation. May this be the truth of the gospel that calms our racing minds. May this bring comfort to our souls in the midst of turmoil. And may this be the hope of glory that we fix our eyes on. Christ died. He does not condemn those who are in him. And there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Can we stand together and sing?